C. diff, spores, and more is brought to you by Clorox Healthcare, trusted solutions for your infection prevention needs. Visit us on the web at CloroxHealthcare.com. Welcome to C. diff, spores, and more with your host, Nancy Kerala. We are here to discuss C. diff, healthcare-associated infections, and other related healthcare topics. Now, here's your host, Nancy Kerala. Welcome to the program and thank you for joining us today. It's a brand new year and it's so good to have you here with us for the first C. diff spores and more program of 2018. We would like to thank our sponsor, Clorox Healthcare, for making this program possible. Please visit the Clorox Healthcare website to learn more about their products, keeping environments safer, cloroxhealthcare.com forward slash Radio. Joining me today is a well-known expert from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention in Atlanta, Georgia. We have Dr. Arjun Svinivasan. Dr. Svinivasan is an infectious disease doctor and the Associate Director of Healthcare-Associated Infection Prevention Programs for the Division of Healthcare Quality Promotion. First, some background. A major part of quality health care includes protecting patients from infections while they are receiving medical care in hospitals, nursing homes, clinics, and other health care settings. In 2009, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services published the National Action Plan to Prevent Healthcare-Associated Infection, which set separate specific five-year goals for infection prevention in healthcare facilities. In 2011, the CDC learned through hospital reportings to its National Healthcare Safety Network that there was an estimated 722,000 healthcare-associated infections in U.S. hospitals and additionally about 75,000 patients with HAIs died during their hospitalizations. The good news, the United States has made significant progress in eliminating healthcare-associated infections, and as a result, healthcare in the U.S. is safer now than it was 10 years ago. But as we know, Dr. Srinivasan, there is still work to be done. Can you tell us, first of all, where have the greatest strides been made Hey, Nancy, absolutely. Yes, you know, as you point out, we, we are seeing progress uh, in a lot of areas when it comes to healthcare-associated infections and preventing antimicrobial resistance. And those, are, of course, are two problems that very much go hand-in-hand. Hand. Many of the infections that we see that are related to healthcare are caused by bacteria that don't respond to antibiotics. They're very difficult to treat. And we know that healthcare settings are a place where these types of uh, pathogens that are hard to treat can be transmitted. And of course, that includes pathogens like Clostridium difficile. So where are we seeing progress? Well, the biggest progress that we've seen is in infections that are due to devices that we use to deliver medical care. Uh, The two best examples of that are catheters that we put into either someone's uh, bloodstream in order to administer medications and catheters that we put into the urinary system in order to drain a patient's urine when they're in a hospital. And we've actually seen encouraging reductions in both of those types of infections. The most dramatic have, of course, been with central line-associated bloodstream infections. Over the course of the last seven or eight years, we've seen about a 50% reduction in those types of infections, central line-associated bloodstream infections, it's a huge reduction, far more than I think anyone ever thought possible a decade ago. And it's important because those are really serious infections. Studies show 
that the mortality from these infections is somewhere between 15 and 25%. So by preventing thousands and thousands of these infections, we are literally saving hundreds and hundreds of lives over the past several years. So a, a huge testament to the effort of all of the healthcare providers and hospitals that have engaged in these efforts to prevent central line associated bloodstream infections. The other place where we've seen some, I think, pretty encouraging reductions has been in these catheter associated urinary tract infections. Um, we've seen reductions. They're more modest than what we've seen for the central line associated bloodstream infections, but we have seen some encouraging reductions in these catheter-associated urinary tract infections. And those are important because they tend to be a reservoir for many of these very resistant organisms. And the other thing that we've seen when it comes to catheter-associated urinary tract infections that's really encouraging is people are using the catheters less often. You know, one of our primary recommendations to prevent the infections, particularly due to catheter-associated urinary tract infections, is to either not use a catheter in the first place or to get it out as soon as possible. And what we are seeing is people really beginning to heed those recommendations and either not put those catheters in or get them out more quickly. I'll shift to a little bit on the places where we are not seeing as much progress. And one of those is, of course, the topic which is of great interest to your listeners, and that's Clostridium difficile. We have seen some modest declines in Clostridium difficile, and I think over the past several years, we've seen about a 15% decline if you go back maybe to 2010 or so. So that's Nothing to scoff at, and I wouldn't want in any way to, uh, to belittle the efforts that have gone into that 15% decline, and at the same time, it's far, far less than what we would like to see. You know, we had a goal uh, set for 2013 of a 30% decline. We did not make that. And so now we have a new goal for 2020. We want to see a 30% decline in Clostridium difficile. And, you know, we are really uh, devoting a lot of effort to try to make sure that we make our goal of that 30% decline this time. The other one that I will comment on very briefly is, of course, methicillin-resistant Staphylococcus aureus, or MRSA, which I think may also be of great interest to, to many of your listeners. And that's, again, another one where we have seen some declines, but they've been pretty modest, and a lot of the declines that we have seen have come thanks to our efforts to prevent central line-associated bloodstream infections. And so this is another infection, MRSA, where we think we need some new efforts and some doubling down on some of the efforts that we've had that are ongoing in order to try to prevent these infections. And that's a little bit of an overview. You know, all of this information, we're getting ready to post some really exciting reports about progress and opportunities in preventing healthcare-associated infections, and those reports will be up on the CDC website very shortly. And one of the reports that I will flag for your readers is a really nice report. It's pretty short. It's a handful, five, I think it's uh, six or seven pages long, but it's a really nice summary of where we have come over the past seven or eight years uh, and where we need to go moving forward. And so I'd really draw attention to that report for folks who are looking to understand where the progress is and where more progress needs to be made. Well, thank you, Dr. Swinney-Bowson, um, for the overview. And it's wonderful to hear the progress being made and the goals that are set. 
And we look forward to also uh, reviewing the report coming out. And doctor, the National Action Plan of 2009 set a five-year goal. Goal Was the goal met in 2013? You know, the, the goal for central line associated bloodstream infections, we came very close to that when that goal was a 50% reduction between 2009 and 2013. And I think we'd achieved about a 47% reduction by 2013. But for none of the other infections did we make those goals. So, you know, overall, not not where we wanted to be. You know, we made some progress, but we didn't meet our goals for any of the other infection types. Okay. And Dr. the CDC would like to continue building on success. What are some of the greatest challenges in eliminating healthcare associated infections? You know, there there are a number of of different challenges and one of the the biggest challenges in healthcare is, of course, is that the challenges are always evolving. And so what the challenges are, uh, what the challenges that we faced five years ago, many of them are still there, and we have a whole bunch of new challenges that that have come up. But some of the things I think that we have uh, recognized that are ongoing issues that we're working to, to deal with are a couple. And these are ones I think that are really important for our efforts moving forward, especially when it comes to Clostridium difficile and methicillin-resistant Staph aureus. And so one of these is the trying to find a way to deal with the interconnectedness of the healthcare delivery system. What do I mean by that? Well, we know that patients uh, come from their home, they go to a clinic, they might be admitted to a hospital, then they might be discharged to a long-term acute care hospital, then maybe they go to a nursing home or a long-term care facility. They may get ill again and go back to the hospital. Uh, at some point, hopefully, they go home, they go back to the clinic, and every time they move, they take all of their organisms with them. So if you have C. diff, you are taking your C. diff with you into all of those different settings. So the C. diff infection that might start in the nursing home might then be moved to the hospital. If you get transferred to a hospital, it might be tr- you might uh, move to a clinic if you go to your clinic. And so when we think about preventing infections, you know, one of the things we note is that we've done, we've made reasonable progress on the infections that an individual facility can prevent all by itself, right? So central line associated bloodstream infections, I can do that all on my own. Um, catheter associated urinary tract infections, I can do that on my own. C. diff, I can't really do completely on my own because my rates of C. diff are going to be influenced by how many patients with C. diff get admitted to my hospital and whether or not I knew they had C. diff when they came to my hospital so that I could put them on contact precautions and alert providers that they had that infection. And so when we talk about infections like C. diff and MRSA, where we've not seen as much prevention, These are infections where a chain is only as strong as its weakest link. So if you have one facility in your community that is not doing a good job with infection control and antibiotic use and is breeding a lot of Clostridium difficile, they are then going to export uh, those infections into other healthcare settings, and those patients can then serve as reservoirs for transmission in those other settings. So I think one of the biggest areas that we recognize where we have to do a better job is working to bring healthcare facilities together to try and tackle these problems collaboratively. 
And that's one of the areas where, you know, we recognize that a huge uh, partnership opportunity exists with our partners in state and local health departments. You know, these are the folks who are right there. They're in your communities. They're on the front lines. They know the hospitals. They know the nursing homes. Um, They are the ones who can really bring those folks together in a city, in a state, in a county, in a region, and and get folks to talk and collaborate and work together. And so that's something that, you know, we've been focused on for some time. And I think we recognize now that there's a lot more that we have to do in that space. So I would say that that's one of the major areas where we are working to try to make improvements. Another one is, of course, with uh, working to improve antibiotic use. I think we uh, have known for a long time but are increasingly becoming aware of the data showing that the real driving factor for Clostridium difficile throughout the healthcare system in the United States really is antibiotic use. There is certainly an infection control component to it, but we also are increasingly finding that it's probably the antibiotic use that's the more important driver. So, you know, our efforts to do better environmental cleaning are important, they're valid, and they're only going to get us so far. And if we really want to make transformative progress in Clostridium difficile, we're going to have to do a much, much better job with improving antibiotic use everywhere where those drugs are prescribed, be it in outpatient clinics, nursing homes, or in hospitals. Okay. And Dr. Svenny-Valson, thank you so much for sharing this important information with our listeners today. Uh, at this time, we're going to pause for a commercial break. When we return, we will continue learning more about patient safety and how to prevent healthcare-associated infections with our guest, Dr. Arjun Svenny-Valson, Associate Director of Health Care Associated Infection Prevention Programs for the CDC. Please stay tuned. We'll be right back after these messages. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Because C. difficile lives on surfaces for weeks, because it infects nearly 500,000 Americans yearly, you need disinfectants you can trust. Clorox Healthcare bleach products, cited by more studies to kill C. diff than any other products. EPA registered to kill C. diff in as fast as three minutes. Trusted disinfectants to kill C. diff spores in hospitals, because even one C. diff infection is too many. Learn more at CloroxHealthcare.com. Have you done any of these things today? Exited a restroom? Entered and exited a patient's room? Visited a doctor's office? Have you done this today? washed your hands. Hand washing remains the single most important task of the day. It takes soap, water, a minimum of 30 seconds, and a clean dry towel to turn off faucets and dry hands to stop giving germs a free ride. Keep safe from germs worldwide. Hand washing, number one in infection prevention. For additional information on hand washing instructions, visit cdifffoundation.org. Find out what's happening on the Voice America Talk Radio Network by keeping up with us on Twitter. You can find us at Voice America TRN. You are listening to C. diff, spores, and more. If you have a question, please send an email to info at cdifffoundation.org. Now, back to our program. Here again is your host, Nancy Kerala. 
Welcome back to the program and thank you for joining us today. We are speaking with Dr. Arjun Srinivasan, Associate Director of Healthcare Associated Infection Prevention Programs for the CDC. And we thank you again for joining us today, Dr. Srinivasan. It's my pleasure, Nancy. Well, thank you. And one of the most important ways for preventing infections and the spread of infection is good hand hygiene, also known as hand washing. It seems to be so basic, yet why is it so often a problem in healthcare settings? You know, Nancy, you're, you're right. Cleaning your hands, having clean hands when you are delivering care is you know, so funda- fundamentally important. We've known for more than 100 years that this is probably the simplest and single most effective thing that we can do in order to prevent the spread of infections, both in healthcare and, and outside of healthcare as well. And, and it is a, a challenge. As you know, you know, we don't, as healthcare providers, clean our hands as often as we are supposed to. And I think generally it's not because uh, that healthcare providers don't believe it's important. I think if you ask them, they would readily agree that it's important. Uh, I don't think it's, they feel like it's difficult to do, but the challenge becomes is that, you know, when you are delivering healthcare and you're moving from room to room and you're trying to keep track of all the things that's going on, you know, think about uh, a nurse in an intensive care unit where there's multiple alarms uh, going off that have to be dealt with. There's medications to administer. Um, the patient may need help. Uh, moving uh, in the bed, and then there's uh, you're calling for you in another room, uh, and there's all these things that are going on. And in the midst of all that, you have to remember to clean your hands. And so it's one of those things I think that you know we are all human, and our 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 attention span is limited, and we just sometimes simply forget. And you know when you're in a healthcare environment, there have been studies that have been done that have shown that. You know, a, a busy clinician might need to wash his or her hands a hundred times over the course of an eight-hour shift. And I would say that even someone with the absolute best training and best of intentions, uh, when you ask them to do something a hundred times in the span of eight hours, they are simply going to forget to do it uh, some number of times because their uh, attentions are elsewhere. Uh, and that's why I think you do see a lot of efforts in healthcare settings and hospitals and nursing homes and in clinics to put reminders in different places so that there are those visual cues. So when I, as a provider, go into a room, I see that poster and think, oh, wait a minute, did I remember to clean my hands? If I didn't, I can do it right now. And we also see efforts to really try and engage patients and their families in that. As Again, one more reminder, hey, doc, did, did you clean your hands um, before you, you did this? And so I think these are all the different types of things that people are doing to try and improve the, the rates of hand cleaning, hand hygiene, hand washing, whatever you want to call it. And we've seen a lot of success. You know, I think when I was, was training, you know, 15, 20 years ago, the rates of uh, hand cleaning in healthcare facilities, what we call hand hygiene, were really not very good. They ran around 50%. More recently, we have seen a lot of places reporting compliance rates well into the 90s. And I think there have been some, some uh, very valid uh, criticisms that have, have come forward to say, well, are you sure 
those rates are really that high? What's the methods that are being used to do those evaluations? And I think there's a general consensus that while we can always do more to have better methods for observing and monitoring hand hygiene, there is, I think, universal agreement that we are doing a much, much better job than we have ever done before in healthcare. Uh, and I think that's really encouraging. I think I see a lot of places that I, I really think they have gotten into the high 90s with compliance, and, and it's real. Um, they are taking steps to, uh, to monitor it very carefully. So I think this is a place where we're making a lot of progress, and we have to continue to be vigilant about it. You know, as a patient, uh, it's not always easy to remind your provider about cleaning their hands, uh, but you have to remember that you, this is a favor that you as a patient can do for your provider. Um, so I think you have to kind of think about it that way uh, and uh, have the courage to, to raise that question. And I hope that you're met with, uh, with thanks. I mean, I'm always appreciative. Whenever a patient asks me, I always say, you know, thank you for reminding me. I, I just did it. Or, you know what? I, I did forget. I walked in and, you know, you and I were talking when I came in the room and I, I clean forgot. And I thank you for reminding me. Exactly. And Dr. Swinney Boston, would you mind taking a moment and explain to our listeners what can be found on our hands and also the type of infections that can be spread through poor hand hygiene? Absolutely, Nancy. That's a great question. You know, so many different types of infections can be spread on our hands. And so they run the gamut from all sorts of different types of bacteria, uh, including things like Clostridium difficile, like methicillin-resistant Staph aureus or MRSA, and some of these very, very hard to treat, these resistant pathogens that, uh, that you hear us talking about, things like carbapenem-resistant Enterobacteriaceae or CRE, uh, very, very long name for a very, very hard-to-treat type of bacteria. But we can also spread things like influenza virus. One of the common ways that influenza can spread uh, is on our hands. We can spread gastrointestinal infections like norovirus, all those GI bugs that go around. Um, so all of these different things can be spread on our hands. It's important for people to know, and I'm sure everybody knows this, you know, this is not a phenomenon that's limited to healthcare. Uh, there have been really good studies that show if you improve hand hygiene in daycare centers, in schools, in colleges, you can reduce the, uh, the incidence of respiratory infections and gastrointestinal infections. So it's something that's really important, not just for us as healthcare providers, but for all of us as patients. Exactly. It's a good habit to get into, both home and away from home. Thank you so much, doctor. Um, Absolutely. Maybe what's the difference between washing your hands with soap and water and using the alcohol-based hand sanitizers that are available? Yeah, that's a great question. The alcohol-based hand sanitizers have really transformed our ability to deliver safe care uh, in hospitals, clinics, and nursing homes uh, in the United States and around the world. Alcohol-based hand sanitizers are incredibly effective. They kill bacteria, they kill viruses, they kill funguses or fungi, uh, and they, they do a fantastic job, and they're quick, and they're really easy to use. So we tell people, you know, for the vast majority of the time, what you need is an alcohol-based hand sanitizer. 
there are some exceptions to that. So uh, when your hands are visibly soiled, so you have something on your hand, you've blown your nose and you have something on your hand or you've been to the bathroom, uh, those are instances where you really need to wash your hands. What we know is that the alcohol-based hand sanitizers don't work as well when you have uh, visible material on your hands. So anytime that you can see, oh, my hand is dirty, you need to wash your hand. The other time that we will occasionally ask people to shift away from, hand, uh, from the hand sanitizers and go to hand washing is in certain instances with Clostridium difficile. You know, the alcohol-based hand sanitizers cannot kill Clostridium difficile spores. And this is one of the challenges, as the name of your radio show implies, it's one of the challenges in dealing with Clostridium difficile. And so there are times in healthcare settings where you know, we will tell providers, you know, this patient has Clostridium difficile or we're in the midst uh, of an outbreak of Clostridium difficile. And for that reason, we are going to ask you not to use the hand sanitizer in these situations, but to shift to hand washing. But the important thing for folks to know that in the overwhelming majority of instances, the alcohol-based hand sanitizers are incredibly effective. And so, you know, the, the majority of the time, 95, 99% of the time, we are going to be encouraging people to use those alcohol-based hand sanitizers. Okay. And doctor, let's dispel some of the myths. Can hand sanitizers cause bacteria to become resistant? Yeah, Nancy, these are great myths to dispel. Absolutely not. Bacteria, viruses, uh, fungi do not develop resistance to alcohol-based hand sanitizers. Okay. And Dr. Swinney Balsam, before we go to break, is it still practical for nurses and healthcare providers to wash in and gel out? You know, I think in certain instances it is. So when you need to wash your hands, you know, in situations where you might have a Clostridium difficile case, if that's the policy or during an outbreak, uh, yes, I think the, the fact that we can use the alcohol-based hand sanitizers most of the time does make our workflow a little bit easier so that when we need to go to, uh, to hand washing in some of those certain instances, we are more able to do that. So I think the, the, be- the other beauty of the alcohol-based hand sanitizers is it does free us up to actually go back to soap and water in those instances when we need to. Okay. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Swinney-Balson. We are going to pause here for a commercial break. When we return, we will be discussing the link between antibiotics and healthcare-associated infections. Please stay tuned. We'll be right back after these messages. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. To help support the CDF Foundation, please visit our website, cdifffoundation.org forward slash donate, or call toll free 1 844 4 CDF. That's 1 844 367 2343. 
Join us in our fight against C. diff and help us continue our mission of educating and advocating for C. diff infection prevention, treatments, and environmental safety worldwide. Through your continued support, we can continue raising C. diff awareness and help save lives. Donate today. Visit cdifffoundation.org. Thank you. The CDF Foundation offers global community support sessions. CDF can affect anyone at any age at any location in the world. Receive support from topic experts sharing information on nutrition, mental health, C. difficile prevention, treatments, and environmental safety, as well as learn about upcoming events, teleconferences, and support sessions. To register for a session, call the CDF Foundation at 1-844-4C-DIF. 1-844-367-2343 or visit us on the web at cdifffoundation.org Support is just a phone call or mouse click away. Because C. difficile lives on surfaces for weeks, because it infects nearly 500,000 Americans yearly, you need disinfectants you can trust. Clorox Healthcare bleach products, cited by more studies to kill C. diff than any other products. EPA registered to kill C. diff in as fast as three minutes. Trusted disinfectants to kill C. diff spores in hospitals, because even one C. diff infection is too many. Learn more at CloroxHealthcare.com. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. You are listening to C. diff, spores, and more. If you have a question, please send an email to info at cdifffoundation.org. Now, back to our program. Here again is your host, Nancy Kerala. Welcome back to the program, and we welcome our listeners joining us today. It's a pleasure to reintroduce our guest, Dr. Arjun Srinivasan, Associate Director of Healthcare Associated Infection Prevention Programs for the CDC. Welcome back to the program, Doctor. Thank you, Nancy. Thanks for having me. Oh, thank you so much for being here. We really appreciate it. And, Doctor, we know that the CDC reports that 30 to 50% of antibiotics are unnecessarily or inappropriately prescribed. Why is this so dangerous to the health of Americans? You know, one of the things I think that we have historically lost sight of when it comes to antibiotics is that these are drugs that have some really potent side effects. Antibiotics are life-saving drugs. You know, they have fundamentally transformed the way that we deliver medical care. You know, they, they really are miracle drugs. They have taken diseases that used to be uh, inevitably fatal and have made them really pretty minor things that we can treat with, uh, with uh, uh, pills that we take for a few days. The downside is that, you know, antibiotics have side effects. They are very powerful drugs. They kill the bacteria that are causing infections, yes, but they also kill all of the good bacteria that are in our bodies. Um, and they can damage our kidneys. They can uh, cause problems with our tendons. Uh, and so what we're increasingly, I think, recognizing is that, you know, antibiotics have benefits and they have risks. And what we tell people is that when you're thinking about either prescribing or taking an antibiotic, you need to consider both the risks and the benefits. And of course, you know, one of the big risks for antibiotic use is the issue that we are focused on here today, which is Clostridium difficile. And we know 
that being exposed to an antibiotic is the single most important risk factor for developing a C. diff infection. We know that getting a course of an antibiotic increases your risk of getting C. diff uh, about seven to ten times uh, in the in the few days while you're taking the antibiotic and immediately after. But what I think people don't realize is that that risk of getting Clostridium difficile stays elevated for weeks and even months after you have finished taking that antibiotic. Uh, and so, you know, we really want people to understand that if you don't need an antibiotic, you don't want an antibiotic. And that's something I think that has really uh, been a, a, a shift in thinking that we're trying to get people to, to make. You know, historically, I think we thought of antibiotics as well. There's, there's only upside and no downside to giving people a prescription. So, yeah, you probably don't need it, but I'm going to give it to you anyway. We really want to shift that to people taking a, a critical appraisal and saying, you know, the risks, there are benefits. Where the benefits outweigh the risks, we absolutely want people to get them. But where the risks outweigh the benefits, we don't want them to get unnecessary antibiotics. Exactly. And doctor, it's vital for patients to know when and how to use antibiotics. Can you share some examples with our listeners today? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, some of the the common reasons that we see antibiotics being misprescribed uh, especially in outpatient practices. So there are lots of things like like colds and coughs where we know that the overwhelming majority, almost all of those infections are caused by viruses. Well, viruses don't respond to antibiotics. And so when you have a cold, you don't want an antibiotic and prescribers shouldn't be giving them. Most of the time, things like bronchitis even doesn't respond to antibiotics. They're caused by viruses. We don't need them. Sinusitis is another great example where people think, oh, I I need an antibiotic because I have sinusitis, whereas the studies have shown that most of the time, sinusitis is a self-limited illness that's going to go away on its own, and you don't need an antibiotic. So a lot of these really common things that prompt people to go to their uh, clinician, to their provider, and ask for an antibiotic are oftentimes the very types of, of infections that don't respond to those antibiotics. So when you get an antibiotic in those situations, you are getting all of the risks of antibiotics. You're at risk for C. diff and kidney damage and rash, um, and you're not getting any benefit. So those are some of the really common things that we tell people, you know, think carefully before you prescribe or if you're a patient think before you, you know, push your provider uh, to give you an antibiotic in a situation where you might not need it. Okay, thank you, doctor. And can you explain what a broad-spectrum antibiotic is and when should it be used? Yeah, absolutely. You know, we, we talk about uh, antibiotics in terms of how many different types of bacteria they can kill. And so the broader the spectrum, the more powerful the antibiotic with respect to the number of different types of bacteria that it can kill. So that's quite simply what we refer to. And so when people refer to a broad-spectrum antibiotic, they are referring to an antibiotic that can kill a large number of different organisms. Uh, and the, the issue is, is that those broad-spectrum antibiotics are oftentimes the ones that pose some of the risks for Clostridium difficile because they wipe out all of your good bacteria. So ideally, when you take an antibiotic, you want an antibiotic that's kind of 
focused like a laser beam on the bad bacteria that are causing your problem and that minimizes the damage that's done to your good bacteria. When you go in with a broad-spectrum antibiotic, you end up kind of killing off a lot of the things that you didn't intend to. And, you know, a great example of this is, you know, my wife works with the Nature Conservancy, and they will do what they call a prescribed fire, right? So they'll go into a forest, and they'll burn off very carefully the undergrowth and the, and the, the brush in the forest, and that decreases the risk of forest fires. And so I love to use that analogy because I'll tell people, you know, a narrow-spectrum antibiotic is kind of like um, burning the, the, the scrub brush and the things that are, are low down. So it's very controlled and, it, and it's good for the forest. A broad-spectrum antibiotic is like a wildfire. It's just going to wipe out everything. So, yeah, it's going to wipe out the brush, but it's also going to kill all the trees that you're trying to protect. Exactly. And we know that the CDC has also learned that many patients aren't getting first-line antibiotics. Why is that, and what are the risks of that? Yeah, you know, that's something that we've found that uh, in many instances, patients are getting tending to get broad-spectrum antibiotics when the treatment guidelines recommend a narrower-spectrum antibiotic. And so this is oftentimes what we see for infections like sinusitis, um, where in situations where an antibiotic is needed, the guideline will recommend a narrow-spectrum antibiotic, uh, but what's often prescribed are the broader-spectrum antibiotics. And a particular class of antibiotics that's been problematic has been the fluoroquinolone class of antibiotics. Fluoroquinolones are amazing drugs. They are uh, very well tolerated. They are broad spectrum and powerful antibiotics. But because they're so easy to prescribe and so easy to take, we have seen them be used in a lot of circumstances where they're not the recommended first-line drug. And in fact, we know that the fluoroquinolone class of antibiotics has been one of the major drivers of Clostridium difficile. It's one of the biggest risk factors in terms of classes of antibiotics for C. diff infections. Uh, and in fact, some of those reasons, it prompted the Food and Drug Administration to issue a warning that uh, tells people, look, if you don't need a fluoroquinolone, you should not take a fluoroquinolone. They have encouraged people to really limit the use of fluoroquinolones to more serious infections and not to take them for uh, other types of infections that might be less serious where narrower spectrum agents are recommended in treatment guidelines. Okay, and what kind of dialogue should there be between the doctor and patient about antibiotics, doctor? You know, I think that what we want is for... um, for uh, patients and providers to, you know, like you said, engage in a discussion. We want patients to always understand uh, what's going on with me, what kind of infection do I have, what's the right treatment for it. Uh, is an antibiotic a right treatment, or uh, is this a viral infection that's going to run its course? So it's important to know what's causing your symptoms, what type of infection do you have, and whether or not antibiotics are indicated for your infection. If an antibiotic is, is indicated and your prescriber is, is going to give you an antibiotic, it's important to know how long you need to take the antibiotic for, how you're supposed to take it, how many times a day. Um, 
and really important to ask your provider, you know, what do you need to know about? If, uh, are there side effects to this antibiotic that I need to let you know about if I develop? For example, we always tell people, you know, I'm going to give you an antibiotic. This antibiotic can cause diarrhea and can also cause Clostridium difficile diarrhea. So if you start taking this antibiotic and you get diarrhea, I need to hear about it. You need to call my office so that we can talk things through and make sure that you haven't developed Clostridium difficile. So main things I would say are know uh, what's causing your symptoms. If you're getting an antibiotic, why are you getting an antibiotic? How long do you need it for? How do you take it? And what are the side effects? Okay. And before we go to commercial break, doctor, can you um, briefly explain what we know about probiotics? Yeah, you know, I think there is a growing consensus that probiotics uh, could be a very important addition to our uh, our therapies to help uh, restore your good bacteria in situations where you get an antibiotic. The challenge, of course, is that probiotics are not regulated by, uh, by any type of agency. And so what is in a, a probiotic is really largely unknown. Um, so when you go and you buy a probiotic, there's no good way to know for sure that you are getting what you want to get in that probiotic. Uh, and so that's, you know, one of the great challenges with probiotics. I think there's good agreement that if we could get a probiotic that was uh, very well known and we knew exactly what was in there, uh, that would probably be a major advance in our uh, adding probiotics into the treatment strategies that we have. Like I said, the big challenge right now is that there are so many different probiotics on the market. Uh, and in fact, there have been some tests done of some of these products that have shown that, you know, what is actually in the probiotic is not what is being advertised on the label. And I think that's the big challenge that we face right now with probiotics. Exactly. And thank you so much, Dr. Svinivasan, for sharing the information about antibiotics and, and antibiotic usage. Uh, we At this time, we're going to t- uh, pause for a commercial break. When we return, we will continue discussing patient safety with our guest, Dr. Arjun Svinivasan. Please stay tuned. We'll be back after these messages. <music> Get the news on our shows and other happenings by following us on Twitter. Find us at VoiceAmericaTRN or Twitter.com forward slash VoiceAmericaTRN. To help support the CDF Foundation, please visit our website, cdifffoundation.org forward slash donate or call toll free 1 844 4 CDF. That's 1 844 367 2343. Join us in our fight against C. diff and help us continue our mission of educating and advocating for C. diff infection prevention, treatments, and environmental safety worldwide. Through your continued support, we can continue raising C. diff awareness and help save lives. Donate today. Visit cdifffoundation.org. Thank you. Because C. difficile lives on surfaces for weeks, because it infects nearly 500,000 Americans yearly, you need disinfectants you can trust. Clorox Healthcare bleach products, cited by more studies to kill C. diff than any other products. EPA registered to kill C. diff in as fast as three minutes. Trusted disinfectants to kill C. diff spores in hospitals, because even one C. diff infection is too many. Learn more at CloroxHealthcare.com. 
Have you done any of these things today? Exited a restroom? Entered and exited a patient's room? Visited a doctor's office? Have you done this today? Washed your hands? Hand washing remains the single most important task of the day. It takes soap, water, a minimum of 30 seconds, and a clean dry towel to turn off faucets and dry hands to stop giving germs a free ride. Keep safe from germs worldwide. Hand washing, number one in infection prevention. For additional information on hand washing instructions, visit cdifffoundation.org. Your favorite Voice America Talk Radio Network shows and hosts are in your car, outdoors, and wherever you need them to be. Listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. You are listening to C. diff, spores, and more. If you have a question, please send an email to info at cdifffoundation.org. Now, back to our program. Here again is your host, Nancy Kerala. Welcome back to the program, and thank you for joining us today. It's a pleasure to reintroduce our guest, Dr. Arjan Svinivasan, Associate Director of Healthcare, Associated Infection Prevention Programs for the CDC. Welcome back to the program, doctor. Always a pleasure, Nancy. Thank you so much for joining us today. And uh, in the previous um, segment before commercial, you were kindly uh, discussing the antibiotics usage. And I just wanted to remind every our listeners that on, in November, uh, the U.S. Antibiotic Awareness Week uh, is dedicated to campaign from the CDC. And everyone can learn more about this campaign going to www.cdc.gov forward slash antibiotic dash use. And again, that will be one week in November. Do you know the dates yet? I wasn't able to locate that. It's usually the third week in November. Okay, wonderful. Well, thank you for sharing that. And doctor, the new word for 2018 seems to be the microbiome. What can you tell us about some of the exciting new CDC research on the horizon for this year? Yeah, absolutely. I think the microbiome remains uh, a very hot topic and is only getting hotter. You know, the microbiome, as, as many of your listeners already know, kind of refers to the, the huge collection of bacteria that live on us and in us in particular, particularly in our colons. And, you know, what we're increasingly learning is that uh, our microbiome is a really, really important determinant for keeping us healthy, we need those good bacteria to keep us healthy, keep us safe from infections, to help us grow and develop normally and to protect us from diseases. Uh, and we are doing a lot of different studies at CDC. You know, there are kind of a couple of different areas that we're really focused on. One is seeking to try and understand how bacteria disrupt the normal microbiome. We know that different bacteria do different things to the microbiome, and we're really uh, dedicating some of our work to trying to understand, uh, you know, how does antibiotic A differ from antibiotic B when it comes to the microbiome, and are there then implications for treatment for patients in whom we might choose antibiotic A over antibiotic B because of its microbiome effects. The other thing that there is some exciting work that's being done is looking at different ways that we might be able to try and either protect or even restore microbiomes after people have been on antibiotics. And these are 
early in their development, but I think there are some, uh, hopefully some exciting things on the horizon so that even when we do have to give someone an antibiotic, even a really powerful antibiotic that really disrupts the microbiome, uh, hopefully in their future, not too distant future, there will be a way to both help protect the microbiome during the antibiotic exposure and then restore it once the antibiotic is done. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Swinney Boston. Do you have any closing comments at this time? No, I, I think that uh, really encourage people to continue to visit our website at cdc.gov. There's a host of information there about all different types of healthcare-associated infections, uh, antibiotic use, antibiotic resistance, lots of content on Clostridium difficile, uh, and we're adding uh, new information to that website all the time. There's reports that I mentioned earlier in our, in our podcast on the progress on healthcare-associated infections will be there soon. Uh, so uh, please do visit uh, visit our website, and uh, if you have questions, we do have places where you can send us questions, and we will respond to them. Well. Thank you so much, Dr. Swinney Balson, for joining us today for our, in our discussion. And it's been a pleasure having you here today. So thank you again for joining us. Thank you, Nancy. We really do appreciate everything that you do to uh, educate people about these important issues. Well, thank you. And at this time, we'd like to thank our official sponsor, Clorox Healthcare, for making this program possible. Please visit their website, cloroxhealthcare.com forward slash Radio. Uh, We also would like to take this opportunity to acknowledge all of the organizations around the globe who are dedicated to improving health. The organizations and professionals researching and developing new products addressing C. difficile infection prevention and treatments. To learn more about C. difficile infection clinical trials in progress and how you may be able to take part in a clinical study, please visit the C. diff foundation's website, www.cdifffoundation.org, and click on clinical trials in progress. Please help them help you to help others. We send out our get well wishes to all of the patients being treated and recovering from a C. difficile infection and the many wellness draining illnesses being combated across the globe. I'm your host, Nancy Corrala, with our reminder, none of us can do this alone. All of us can do this together. We wish you a good health and a good day. Thank you for tuning in this week for C. diff, spores, and more. Be sure to join your host, Nancy Kerala, again next Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time. That's 1 p.m. Eastern Time for another edition of our program on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. None of us can do this alone. All of us can do this together. together.